Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of November 2017 and this is episode number 41. On this week's podcast, I talked to Dr. William Stewart about his book on the Canadians on the Somme, published by Helian and Co. I spoke to Bill from his home in Canada using the marbles of Skype. Apologies for the sound quality in parts of this interview. We had a few gremlins in the system. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you begin by giving us some background on how you became interested in the Great War? Certainly. It really arose in the, uh, in, when I was an undergrad. I don't have any family that served in the, in the First World War. They were either too old, too young, or too foreign. But I was intrigued uh, by the issue of how did the Canadians perform as well as they did in the First World War, given their rather undistinguished antecedents. And I went on and did an undergrad, or pardon me, a, a master's degree exactly on that topic. Changed careers. I uh, spent 25 years in high tech as a VP and senior uh, consultant and decided to go back to school, uh, graduated from the University of Birmingham with a PhD, and my first topic uh, was on a controversial Canadian general who um, served on the song. So why did you come to write a book on the Canadians um, on the Somme as distinct from anywhere else? Well, when I was doing the research for that first book, I was struck by how little had been written about the Canadian experience. And this is surprising, especially given it was the second longest and second costliest the Canadians fought, and that it engendered sweeping changes in the way the Canadians fought, were trained, were administered. Uh, you know, in contrast, you know, there are five books on the Australian experience on the Somme published in the last 20 years. There is essentially nothing been done on the Canadian. And I thought it was an important topic that uh, needed attention. So when we come to talk about the Canadians um, on the Somme, what formations are we talking about? Well, there's essentially two separate groups. So there is the Canadian Corps, which consisted initially of the 1st, 2nd and 3rd Canadian Divisions. It moves into the line on the 31st of August and uh, leaves on the 17th of October. The 4th Canadian Division had arrived uh, overseas uh, on, the, on the continent in uh, mid-August, but it needed a couple more months of seasoning and training, so it didn't move to the Somme to mid-October. It briefly served under command of the Canadian Corps, but when the Corps moved north to the Vimy sector, it remained behind and served under the British Second Corps until the end of the campaign. Bill, before we examine the Canadians on the Somme, can you give us an idea of who these Canadian men were? So the uh, pre-war, the Canadian military consisted of a 3,000-man permanent force, the equivalent of the British regular army. There was a 70,000-man uh, militia force, equivalent to territorials, except perhaps less well-trained. At the start of the war, the Minister of Militia, Sam Hughes, rather than using the militia as the basis, decided to raise brand new formations. So all of the 48 battalions, or of the 48 battalions that the Canadians had on the Somme, only one was a pre-war unit. These are all volunteers. Uh, the majority of the men were urban. Um, there were certainly some voyageurs, ranchers, uh, hunters, etc. But they were they were a minority. Most of the rank and file were uh, British-born, although many would have come over as infants or as small children. Officers, predominantly Canadian-born, they're pretty much all militia officers or uh, civilian officers that were promoted from the the ranks of the senior combat. Officers, that's the those of Lieutenant Colonel and above. Almost 80% are from the militia. 
Um, only about 14% are permanent force officers, and there's only three British regular army officers command positions. However, there are uh, considerable numbers of British staff officers. Uh, pretty much all of the senior staff and many of the junior staff officers uh, are staff-trained British regulars, and they are on the whole superb. Three of the future chiefs of the Imperial General Staff during the Second World War served in the Canadian Corps. Now, when I read your book, I, I've noticed that the Newfoundland Regiment seemed to be absent from um, your discussions. Um, and obviously they took a, a major uh, hammering at Beaumont Hamill on the 1st of July. So what's the story here? At that point, uh, during the First World War, Newfoundland was not part of Canada. It didn't join Confederation until 1949. The Newfoundland government was determined that the, uh, their contribution was not going to be uh, subsumed into the larger Canadian uh, contingent, so that served separately. Uh, that what be, would become the Royal Newfoundland Regiment served with the 29th Division through the war. What exactly did the um, Canadians do on the Somme? What battles were they involved in over the 141 days of the, of the uh, engagement? So the Canadians uh, first go into the line on the 31st of August. Their first major engagement is the Battle of Fleur's Corselet, the introduction of tanks, of which six served with the 2nd Canadian Division. Uh, Canadians performed well in that battle. They uh, advanced 1,000 uh, yards, took all of their objectives, and then based on last-minute orders from the Army Command, launched a second assault later that afternoon and took the town of Corselet along with 1,000 prisoners. And this is uh, rather... Uh, Amazing kind of result, and given that orders on the Somme typically took 24 hours to be executed uh, because of the communications issues, so that the Canadians were able to pull this off with such short notice, I think it was an indication of uh, how well prepared they were when they arrived on the Somme. However, uh, things uh, didn't go as well from that point on. Uh, they did participate in the Battle of Thiepville Ridge, where the uh, famous fortified position of Thiepville was captured on the 26th of uh, September. The Canadians took three, two of the three lines that we were tasked to, to take. Uh, they were stymied at a trench line called Regina Trench. And for the next four weeks, there would be constant fighting to try and capture this. Canadians made two attempts on the 1st and 8th of October that were costly failures. And by that point, the Canadian Corps was burned out. It had suffered over 18,000 casualties, was not receiving enough replacements, and its combat effectiveness was um, severely worn down. It was transferred to the Vimy sector, and the 4th Division remained behind. The 4th took part in the attack on Regina Trench that captured most of it on the 21st of October, and then participated in one more major attack on the 18th of November the capture of Desire Trench in what was arguably some of the worst conditions on the Western Front. It was in a, a sleet snowstorm uh, that resulted in a very high number of wounded soldiers dying because of the cold and the wet. So when we actually look at how the Canadians um, experienced the Somme and what they went through, what's, what sort of broad themes emerge from your book? Well, the first is the difficulty of command. Uh, Generals were operating in Stygian darkness. The communication systems were uh, very slow. The information they received was often inaccurate, was fragmented, uh, was greatly delayed. And as a result, it was just very difficult to command. I'll give you an example. Arthur Curry, commander of the 1st Division, who later ended up commanding the Canadian Corps, and arguably one of the better Corps commanders on the Western Front made six major decisions on the 8th of October, one of the failed attacks on Regina Trench. 
he had to either reverse those decisions or they were not able to be executed. And that was not because of incompetence on his part, but because simply the communication systems and control systems uh, were too slow to react to the changing situ situation. Further, as I mentioned, uh, close to 80% of the senior officers are militia part-timers. They're uh, stockbrokers. They run construction firms. faces their first offensive campaign, and they have a lot to learn. The second theme is, and related to that, is just the complexity of the systems that they're trying to manage. You've got communications issues. You've got to coordinate the various elements of the infantry, artillery, engineers, machine guns. Uh, all of these systems are complex and how they all work best together is still being figured out and a problem had not really been solved on the song. And the third point is uh, the dominance of artillery. I took a look at each one of the battalion uh, attacks by the Canadians on the song. There were 57 contested attacks. And when they look at how effective the artillery was, there's a um, when the artillery was effective, there was about a 94% chance the attack would be successful or at least partially successful. When the artillery was not, that is, the barrage and bombardment uh, didn't work, none of the attacks succeeded. So that leads to the next point, is the uh, unsustainable casualty rates. Uh, in all of these uh, contested attacks, uh, three out of every four officers became a casualties and half of the men. And that explains to a large degree why units became increasingly less effective with each one of their tours. What's more is, through the course of the war, the ratio of wounded to dead was three to one. On the Somme, it was two to one. And what's more, 55% of those that were dead or missing, or probably were dead, have no known grave. So you can see just the, the, the terrible casualty rates in that effect. Something that was unique to the Canadians, the fifth point is the Canadian replacement system collapsed. Units were going into battle severely under strength. In one instance, the 14th Battalion attacked just 75 men strong. But it wasn't only the quantity of replacements they received, it was the quality of training. Seven out of 10 of the replacements they received had not even had 10 weeks of training. As a result, men were arriving at the front without having fired the standard rifle or thrown the standard grenade. That, again, helps explain why the Canadian Corps was less effective in its subsequent battles on the Somme. Final point is the amazing fortitude of the soldiers. They are having to operate in conditions that almost belie belief. They're drinking gasoline-tainted water. They often have uh, cold food only to, to eat. They're operating in an outdoor abattoir. When the whistle blows, though, they still hop the bags and attack, even though knowing very well what the probable consequence of their action is. Now, the, the, there's been a big debate in, in a lot of British literature about what impact the experience or the combat experience of, of units on the Somme um, had in the later development of, the, obviously, the British Expeditionary Force. And you actually look at this um, in, re, in regards to the Canadians. So how did their experience um, during sort of July to November actually shape how they fought in 1917 and 1918? The Canadian success in 17 and 18 was really forged from the bitter lessons that arose from the Somme. The 83% uh, of the combat officers at Vimy Ridge had served on the Somme in a senior combat role. So it was this command cadre that took the lessons and the experiences of the Somme and said, we have to do better. And the uh, consequences were uh, sweeping. So the infantry organization was uh, reformed. Uh, Canadians went to a platoon organization weeks before GHQ mandated it for the entire British expeditionary force. Uh, 
training was improved. There was much more attention paid to rehearsing attacks for intelligence gathering. The artillery, uh, their accuracy was improved. And most importantly, far more attention was paid to neutralizing German artillery. On the Somme, the Canadian heavy artillery expended no effort on what's called counter-battery fire, suppressing the enemy guns. Whereas at Vimy and into 1918, half of the heavy artillery was devoted exclusively to suppressing German artillery, as, long, as well as a very large intelligence gathering in, uh, information system. Canadian replacement system and training system in England was completely overhauled. And the uh, changes extended all the way to Canada, where a new political structure was put into place to manage the Canadian Expeditionary Force. So similarly to what happened with the BEF, the uh, Canadian Corps underwent uh, massive changes, which was really the foundation of the success of 17 and 18. Because one of the interesting things from your book I was, I was thinking about was, was there a distinct Canadian experience in terms of improvement as distinct from the BEF? Because obviously they used the same kit but the Canadians had this sort of sense of corporacy and they had a, a, a very much a, a sense of that they could pretty well organize and, and structure their units as they as they chose. Yes, the Canadians, in a sense, they are a, a semi-permanent formation. As a result, they can start developing things like a core doctrine. So there are core schools, for instance, that... Uh, platoon commanders, company commanders, battalion commanders go through where they meet the corps commander and senior staff officers and they start developing this standard doctrine and standard approach to solving problems. And as a result, um, you know, the, the Canadians were able to develop a sense of trust that they understood how the system worked, they understand their neighbors, they knew how they worked, which was, a, a, I think, a significant advantage over the standard British formation where divisions were transferred between corps. Uh, you know, we would serve for a couple of days and then move to another corps where there would be a different system. Canadians, because they served together, were able to develop this cohesion and this common approach. And were the uh, Canadians affected by the reorganisation that happened in a lot of British formations where the number of infantry battalions and a brigade were re reduced from three to four? No, actually, uh, so there was a bit of a controversy. So uh, the British government actually approached the Canadians about forming a second corps. And uh, that corps would be produced from the 5th Division that had been formed in England, and as well as pulling those extra battalions uh, out of each brigade so that you would be two corps of three divisions each. Curry, at that point, the commander of the Canadian Corps, pushed back really hard against that and said that it was actually a very inefficient way of doing things, that instead you keep the Canadians at four battalions per brigade, uh, actually add 100 extra men per battalion. He got the uh, increase the size of the machine gun uh, battalion, uh, formed engineer brigades. So... One of the challenges on the Somme, which I obviously didn't have a chance to get into, is there was really poor command policy in that the infantry was required to do all of this extra work. Uh, the engineers provided the, the in a sense, the, the foremen to get the work done, but the infantry had to do the digging. It was really inefficient. It wore the infantry out. They hated doing it. And uh, Curry was able to persuade GHQ to allow the Canadians to form engineer brigades of about 3,000 men strong. So that during the 100 days, the Canadian infantry didn't have to provide work parties. They were just devoted to either resting or training when they were out of the line. So that you know, was one of the ways that helped contribute to uh, the sustained excellence of the Canadian Corps during the 100-day the campaign. Um, and finally, Bill, where can people get your book? I know Christmas is approaching and um, we're all looking for presents. So, so where, where is your book available? It's available at the Hellion & Co. 
website. You can get it at Amazon or any of the leading bookstores. That's great, Bill. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.